Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Berean Post online devotional. We are on 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be taking a look at verses 18 to 22. And I'm just going to go ahead and jump into the text as is my custom. Paul says, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partaker of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to an idol is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and, and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot be partaker of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We admit that sometimes when we sit down to read the pages of Scripture, we come across texts that that initially seem to contradict themselves. This morning, in this passage we are studying today, there are there's a temptation to come to this conclusion. But is Paul contradicting what he said in chapters earlier? Well, today we're going to take a look at the two passages and compare his advice in chapter 8 and the advice he's giving here in chapter 10 to see if there's a simple way to reconcile these two passages. Well, the historical context. In the Roman world, in the Roman world of the first century, there was a market for meat that had been sacrificed to idols. This practice was common in various pagan religions and cults of the time. Temples and religious establishments often received offerings in the form of animals, which were then sacrificed to the gods. After the sacrificial rituals, the remaining meat was frequently sold in local markets or used for communal communal meals and, and banquets. People in the Roman Empire would purchase and consume this meat sometimes as a regular part of their diet. The issue of whether Christians should eat meat sacrificed to idols was a matter of theological and ethical ethical debate in the early in the early in early Christianity rather. As mentioned in the epistle we are currently working our way through, based on passages found in chapter eight, we know that some Christians believed it was permissible to eat such meat, while others felt it was best to abstain to avoid any association with pagan idolatry. Let's begin by reviewing Paul's counsel regarding eating meat sacrificed to idols in chapter 8. Paul says, therefore, concerning things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no other god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not every there's not in everyone that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But, but food does not condemn us to God, command us to God, for if we eat, are we the better, nor if we do not eat, are we the worse. We can see that this passage acknowledges the theological understanding that idols are nothing and that eating food offered to idols does not have any spiritual significance. It focuses on 
the conscience of the individual and suggests that eating or not eating such meat is a matter of personal conviction. It's important to note Paul is not addressing the practice of offering meat to an idol, but the practice of eating meat after it had been previously sacrificed to an idol. In our passage today, Paul says, Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So in this passage, Paul takes a stricter approach because he's dealing with the practice of idolatry. Here, Paul emphasizes that idolatrous practices are essentially the worship of demons and warns against any fellowship with such practices. It highlights the incompatibility of participating in both Christian and idolatrous rituals. Paul begins this whole dissertation with the word or the phrase, rather, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Well, let us take a moment to contemplate the importance of this guidance, fleeing from idolatry. It's important to recognize that within the early church of Corinth, there were individuals who, despite being members of the church, still adhered to pagan idolatry. This fact might challenge our modern perspective on the early church, Many assume that those in the early church must have been inherently pure due to the significance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit just decades earlier. However, we must not forget that alongside the issues that Paul had to address, this was a church with many demonstrative signs of the, of the Holy Spirit's presence. Yet in reality, the reality is, is that this first century uh, church, well, this first century was a time of great complexity as people grappled with the profound, profound event of the resurrection and sought to understand the true nature of Jesus. What it meant to be a follower of Christ was still in the process of being clarified. So it's worth noting that in the same passage, or rather in the same book, but letter, Paul had to confront issues such as a man involved in inappropriate relationships with his father's wife. And in another instance, he had to guide the church regarding individuals who claimed that Jesus was accursed, emphasizing that the Spirit of God does not inspire such statements. In this context, Paul's counsel to the early church encouraging them not to participate in pagan worship becomes more comprehensible. While these instructions appear clear to us today, because we have Paul's guidance to the Corinthians to rely on, they were not as evident to the first century followers of Christ, particularly to those in the Corinthian church as they navigated through these challenging issues. So now let's get back to the text. In this passage, the Apostle Paul speaks to the the Christian Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians rather, and draws a spiritual parallel by referencing the Israelites and their sacrificial practices. In some cases, when the Israelites offered sacrifices on the altar, a portion of the meat was given to the priests who were commanded to eat it as a part of the ceremony. During the passage, uh, during the Passover, rather, the worshippers, for instance, ate the rest of the lamb as a communal meal. Paul points that there, uh, the um, Paul points here that. Those who ate the sacrifices were considered participants or sharing participants or sharers of the altar. In other words, they were united in a spiritual sense with the worship and the significance of the altar. For example, in Exodus 29:31, it says, "You shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. Then Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and, and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the, of the tabernacle of meeting." 
Meat sacrifice to Yahweh was an act of worship and devotion to the one true God, serving as a means of expressing gratitude, seeking forgiveness, or fulfilling religious obligations. However, in pagan rituals, sacrifices were made to secure favor, protection, or blessing from a specific idol. These sacrifices were occasionally consumed in communal meals during um, religious festivals or rituals and sold in markets around the Roman world. Temples and religious establishments often received offerings in the form of animals, which were then sacrificed to the gods. After the sacrificial rituals were performed, the meat was the meat that remained was frequently sold in local markets, and many people in the Roman Empire purchased and consumed this meat as a regular part of their diet. So is Paul contradicting himself? Well, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses the issue of whether Christians can eat food that has been, been sacrificed to idols. He emphasizes that idols are nothing and that only, God, only one God exists. He also acknowledges that some Christians know and understand this issue, which might make them feel more comfortable eating such meat, However, he cautions that knowledge can lead to arrogance and division, and he encourages love and consideration for those who may have a weaker conscience and are troubled by eating such food. So in this passage, Paul's main point is that knowledge should be tempered by love and the consider- and consideration for others. In our passage today, Paul continues to discuss the issue of food, sacrifice to idols, however, with a strict warning to flee from idolatry which in this case meant the practice of offering meat to demons. He clarifies that while an idol is indeed nothing, the sacrifices offered to idols by pagans are offered to demons, and that participating in such sacrifices or idolatry practices is unacceptable for Christians because it involves the worship of demons. So in this passage, Paul's main point is to emphasize the danger of participating in idolatrous practices and the spiritual implications of such participation. Well, in the present day, this passion delves into an enduring issue that continues to confront us, the distinction between matters of conscience and matters of sin. Within many contemporary uh, churches, practice, church practices, these two concepts frequently intertwine. As previously discussed, the Bible offers three distinct dimensions to define sin. Firstly, as a transgression of the Mosaic law, as affirmed in John 3, 4, which states, Whosoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Secondly, it it encompasses the failure to act by one's knowledge of what is good. As the passage states, Therefore to him who knows to do good, and and does it not to him, it is sin. Sin extends lacking a faith foundation, as elucidated in Romans 14.23, which proclaims, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatsoever is not from faith is sin. So, for application, consider a scenario where you encounter food offered to idols, a practice mentioned in the Bible. From a biblical standpoint, idols are objects made of stone, wood, and metal, and there is only one true God. In this context, consuming such meat may be seen as a matter of personal conscience. It doesn't involve breaking any laws. It's simply a matter of eating cooked meat. According to Paul's teaching in the Bible, if your conscience allows you to partake in such meat and faith, you're free to do so. However, Paul understands the importance of considering how your actions impact others. Some may find this act offensive, and in such cases, Paul suggests that love should take precedence over personal freedom. On the contrary, idolatry has no justification even if one comprehends that an idol has no genuine significance. Both Jews and Christians' perspectives strictly forbid worshipping anything other than the one true God. 
a commandment that is explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Violating this commandment constitutes the transgression of a law, the law, leaving no room for interpretation or debate. It's unequivocally a matter of sin, devoid of conscience, related, uh, devoid of considerations rather related to conscience, freedom, or personal liberty. It stands as a clear and absolute violation of God's commands. In modern times, various denominations, churches, and individuals have crafted their own definitions of sin, deviating from the biblical ones. The old church phrase, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't chew, or hang out with folks that do, is a perfect example of what we refer to. In some instances, matters of conscience are elevated to moral concerns and sins, while in other while in other cases, biblical sins like adultery, pornography, fornication, drunkenness, wild parties, lying, unforgiveness, pride, jealousy, um, personal ambition, prejudice, and hatred are treated as matters of individual conscience. Many justify these outright violations by resting in the idea that God knows their hearts and they're saved by faith, not by works. And these ideas are undergirded and fortified by preachers who will assure them that they are eternally secure.